you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open them to 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to begin reading with verse 14 in just a moment. Today we conclude our sermon series, Timeless Truths for Troubled Times, a sermon series that began in 1 Peter, took us all the way through 1 Peter into 2 Peter, and today we're concluding it by looking at the Apostle Peter's last words that we know of. These were the last recorded words of the Apostle Peter before he would die for Jesus, crucified upside down by his request. He did not consider it worthy to be crucified as our Savior was. So they crucified him upside down. He gave his life. For much of the things he's talking about in the two epistles, epistles or letters that bear his name. What is his last words as he concludes? 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 through 18. He's writing to the saints of his day. He's writing to you and I today. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has already written to us, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things are hard to understand, which taught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. I want you to think about this adage that's used in sports primarily, but it can apply to many things. Winners never quit, and quitters never win. Winners in sports are not always those that come out on the favorable side of the scoreboard. I believe winners in sports are those who play the game until the final buzzer, till the last out, till the time clock shows zero, zero, zero. I believe winners in sports play hard, they play fast, they play at their best until the end, no matter the score. Now, if that's true in sports, and I believe it is, that winners never quit, I also believe it's true in matters of faith. Winners in the faith world live for the Lord Jesus Christ until the end. They never give up, back up, change up, or let up till they go up. The Bible, history books, and one day God's Hall of Fame is going to recognize Christian men and women whose contribution to the faith was they started strong for Jesus and they finished strong for Jesus. 
They endured. They persevered. They didn't throw in the towel. They didn't quit. They didn't tap out. They started and they finished what they believed and how they should behave. Pastor, do you really believe there's a Hall of Fame in heaven? If there's a Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York for baseball, if there's a Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio for football, I believe there's a Hall of Fame in heaven. And those who have endured and persevered for the faith, started strong, finished stronger, I believe they're in there. William Carey will be there. He persevered in his ministry in India for over four decades. He didn't quit. Adoram Judson, he endured. He didn't quit in his service to the Lord in Burma. Hudson Taylor didn't quit in China. David Livingston didn't quit in Africa. Amy Carmichael didn't quit in India. The Apostle Paul didn't quit when he went to cities and providences in Rome sharing Christ Jesus. And certainly the Apostle Peter, as he went about Israel and all the surrounding areas of his day, he didn't quit either. They had every reason to quit. They endured persecution, poverty, sickness, loss of everyone and everything they held near and dear. But they didn't quit. When they got knocked down in the faith, they got back up. When they got stopped in the faith, they made a way around it. Winners never quit. That's true in the sports world. It's true in the faith world. They never quit. Some of the finest words, I think, spoken in the Bible about those who are going to be in God's Hall of Fame is these words found in Hebrews eleven thirty-eight, of whom the world was not worthy to have them. Think about that statement. Because this is coming from God through the words of the Apostle Paul. This world is not worthy of such people who persevere and endure through anything and everything for the cause of Christ. This is God's gift to this world because this world doesn't deserve those kind of people. In our verses, Paul's last words to the Christians of his day, to you and I today, is a challenge. He says, I'm going to be leaving this world soon. I'm getting ready to leave this world. You carry on. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't tap out. Don't wave the white flag. Don't surrender. When the going gets tough, you keep going. You persevere. You endure to the end. Walk in faith. Notice the four things he tells us he wants us to endure all the way to the end. In verse 14, he says, Endure to the end by watching for the return of Jesus Christ. Peter was looking for Jesus in his day. Paul was looking for Jesus in his day. 
if they were looking for the coming of the Savior, how much more should we be looking for His coming? Look at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. What things is he talking about? The coming of the Lord and the judgment that will come with that coming. Beloved, looking forward to these things. Now that word looking is an interesting word. It comes from a Greek word that means not just looking with your eyes open. See, right now, most of you are looking at me with your eyes open. Some of you are looking at me with them closed. I know you're praying for me, and I deeply appreciate that. (laughs) But this word looking is a little different. It means looking with your eyes open, but engaging your mind with discernment and engaging your heart with passion. It's not just looking. It's looking with a knowledge that something's about to happen and it's going to happen soon, an anticipation. And it's also looking with a passion. I want it to happen soon. I know it's going to happen. I want it to happen. As we endure whatever lies ahead, we're to look, we're to watch, we're to scan for the coming of Jesus. And do you know all the signs are pointing us to home? The Bible is filled with signs telling us that the coming of the Lord is near. No man knows the day or the hour of our Lord's return, but every person can know the season of that return. Does that make sense to you? I don't know exactly when spring starts. I don't know exactly when summer starts. But when it starts getting warm and the days start getting longer and the grass starts getting greener and the flowers start blooming and the bumblebees start showing up and bunnies in the backyard start coming, that tells me it's close. And the signs that the the prophets of old have given us, the apostles of new have given us, the Lord Jesus has given us. Those signs are flashing before our eyes brighter and brighter with ever-increasing intensity telling us the coming of the Lord is here. Don't never lose that hope that He is coming again. Because some people get tired of that hope. Some people lose their faith in that hope. And Peter says, endure in that hope that Jesus could come back right now. He could come back this afternoon. Next week, next month, next year, it could be a decade from now. But He's coming. One of the great signs of his return. And Jesus made allusion to the fact that perhaps the last generation will be the generation that sees this sign. It's given to us by the prophet Ezekiel in the 37th chapter that bears his name. You know, Ezekiel predicted that one day the nation of Israel would die. It would be buried in the graveyard of nations. Nobody would ever expect it to come back to life. Israel was dead, gone forever. Ezekiel said, no, there will come a day when God will raise that nation from the dead. Just like he raised his son from the dead, he will raise a nation back to life. And that nation will be Israel. People laughed at that prediction in 1948. 
they quit laughing because Israel became a nation again. Just as the prophet Ezekiel said, in the last days that would occur. He also said something in the next chapter, Ezekiel 38. He said, when Israel comes back from the grave, when they're reestablished and restored as a nation, they will be sneaked, attacked. 9-11, Pearl Harbor-style attacked by two nations that will lead another coalition of nations against Israel. These two nations will have in their mind to rob Israel of its wealth and exterminate the Jewish people, to finish the Holocaust that Hitler started but didn't finish. And it's interesting, in Ezekiel 38, the locale of these two nations is given. Russia and Iran. You think it's just coincidental and accidental that they are now together. They're now allies. They're now working and plotting, and I believe planning for that attack that's going to come, and that will be the beginning of World War III. We're to look for the coming of Jesus. Now, I realize that people laugh at that. I'm a minister. I know what ministers say about it. Many of them don't believe it. Many people outside the ministry don't believe it. They smirk. They laugh. They don't believe it's going to happen. They deny the coming. They allegorize it. They redefine it. They mock it. They ignore it. But look at me. It's going to happen. What God says, God does. Noah told the people a flood was coming. They laughed at him, didn't they? I wonder how they felt when the rain started hitting them in the head. One day, those who doubt it will believe it. Because they'll see him in the air. Seeing's believing. So those who endure, those who persevere, those who start with Jesus and finish with Jesus, they're always looking for the coming of Jesus. They understand the signs and they have a passion. They want it to happen. Notice in verse 14, they also, another thing Peter says we're to do. This is talking about endurance, perseverance, finishing well. He says those who endure to the end not only are looking for the return of Jesus, but they're living holy lives. Living holy lives. Look at verse 14 again. Be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. That phrase, without spot and blameless, has an idea of having a clear conscience. Having a clear conscience because you live a clean life. The only way you can have a clear conscience is by living a clean life. If you live a dirty life, you will not have a clean conscience. You will have a guilty conscience. And the sadness is, many Christians, maybe you're here today and one of them, many Christians today do not live holy lives. Either they have been told that they don't have to, or they have chosen not to. Whatever reason, they don't live holy lives. And because of that, if you live a dirty life, an unholy life, an unrighteous life, a life that is contrary to the Word of God, 
you will have guilt. Guilt follows ungodliness just like a dog's tail follows a dog. You listening to me? Those who endure and persevere for our Lord, they understand that if they want to have peace with God, peace with others, and peace with themselves, if they want to have no guilt, they must live a holy life. Holy living and a blameless life all go together. But we see today the church has people that are filled with guilt because their lives are unholy. We look out here and we see a society that's filled with guilt because they choose to live immoral lives. What will guilt do to you? It will create mental illness in you. It can create emotional turmoil in you. It can lead you to substance abuse. It can cause suicidal behavior. Do you know that most people who take their life are eat up with guilt? They're haunted by the ghost of guilt from their past. They go to bed haunted by guilt. They get up in the morning haunted by guilt. They're just consumed with guilt. They can't get out of their mind. They can't get out of their heart things they've said and done that were wrong, that were wicked. And so they're eat up with guilt. They go to psychiatrists for therapy. They go to doctors for pills. None of it works. They're haunted by guilt. And that's because they choose to live unholy lives. There's two things we can do with our sin. We can hold it and keep doing it and be filled with guilt, or we can let it go and stop it and have peace. The choice is ours. If we confess our sin... He is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sin. Cleanse us of all iniquity. Every time you confess your sin, you're getting a washing of the mind and heart. The guilt gets taken away. Why is being holy important? Because I know it's not emphasized from the pulpits anymore. We believe that you run off people if you talk about holy living, so preachers don't say nothing about it. Oh, they have a big crowd, but they don't have a church. Why is holy living important if we're going to endure and persevere and start strong and finish strong? Because in living a holy life, we're taking on the look of Jesus. To be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, my one desire is to be like Him. Is that your song? I hope it is. Well, what is, what is the Lord Jesus? In fact, what is the Trinity? Isaiah the prophet, in the sixth chapter that bears his name, he had an opportunity to look into heaven. One of the few men that has ever had the opportunity to see heaven itself. He saw the throne of God. He saw the angelic host in worship. And when he saw what he saw, he saw the Trinity. He saw God the Father. He saw God the Son. He saw God the Spirit. What did he say, ladies and gentlemen, when he saw that? Holy, holy, holy. The attribute of God above all the other attributes of God is he is holy. And if we're going to be like him, we will be holy. So being holy is to be like him. To be holy is to make a difference in the lives of other people. 
When we live a holy life, it makes it easy for others to believe. When we live a holy life, we're preparing ourselves for the return of Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned and the Lord came looking for them, they ran out of the bushes and hugged his neck and said, Glad to see you, Lord. (laughs) No. They didn't do that, did they? When the Lord came looking for him, he called their name, and they were hidden in the azalea bushes. They didn't want to come out because they were ashamed to see him. The Holy One was in their midst, and they were unholy. Let me ask you something. If I told you right now, Jesus Christ will be here in 15 seconds, what would you do? Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Or, uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. You see, by living a holy life, you're always prepared for his return. You're making a difference in other people who desperately need to see something separate and different about us. And we're acting, we're being like Jesus. Thirdly, Peter's talking to us about how we can be in God's hall of fame. He's talking about how we need to endure and persevere in the things that we believe and how we behave from beginning to end. How if we are true to the faith, we're not going to quit. We might get slowed occasionally. We might detoured occasionally. We might get stopped occasionally. We might get knocked down occasionally. But we're going to get back up and we're going to find a way to keep going. We look for the return of the Lord. We live holy lives. Thirdly, we endure by reaching the lost. Pastor, how how old do I have to be when I can quit witnessing my faith? When you are laying in the coffin, you don't have to do it no more. As long as you have breath, you are called to be a sharer of your faith. And you know something, the more you give Jesus away, the more Jesus you'll have. You say, Pastor, I don't have much Jesus. Start giving him away. You'll find out how much you got. Notice verse 15. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. A salvation that Paul talked about. A salvation that the Scriptures speak of. That's what he's saying in verse 15. We're to share our faith. As we endure, as we persevere, we're to share our faith. The gospel is a whosoever will gospel. We have the responsibility to share it. Share it to every person of every face, race, and place. To share it to our end, their end, or the end. But we share it. Do you know the Christian faith as we know it's dying today? Do you know Christians, uh, churches across America are lights out, doors shuttered? Why? Because God's people don't share their faith anymore. How do we share our faith? If we're to do that from beginning to end, to endure, to persevere, how do we do it? Well, we can do it with our lips and we can do it with our life, and it's good if we do it with both. Talk to talk, walk to walk. 
Learn how to tell people about your faith. Learn how to give a testimony. Learn how to share the gospel. It's not hard. You say, but pastor, I can't do it like you. I can't do it like you either. Do it like you're comfortable with. But do it. So we share with our lips, we share with our life. But we also share with kindness and a track. That's why I talked about this. Can you imagine what would happen if we went into our community just once a week in the normal activities of community and we gave out one of these? That's 52 weeks. Each of us gave out one a week. That's 52 times whatever number we got, five, 600 people here. Can you imagine if just 1% of those that we gave this to said yes to Jesus and asked him to come into their life and save them? It'd be worth it. But we need your help. So we can share your faith with this track. Take it to school. Take it to work. Take it to a restaurant. Put them out in your business foyer. Share your faith. Share it with your lips, share it with your life, share it with a kindness. Kindness is important, by the way. Don't hand somebody this little booklet and bark at them like a bulldog. And certainly don't bite their leg. Don't give it to them with a scowl on your face. Don't give it to them with your fist clenched and say, I'm going to punch you in the mouth if you don't take it. Just smile and be sweet and be kind. And when you hand that book to somebody with that, and if you're in a restaurant with a nice tip as well, they'll take this little booklet. And only heaven knows what it will do for them or somebody else down the line. So we share our faith with our lips, with our life. We share it with kindness and a track. We share it by supporting missions. 175,000 dollars plus every year goes right there. Every one of those ministries are reaching people, some of them in ways that we can't. But we partner with them, and through financially supporting them, we are able to have a worldwide ministry. We can span the globe with the gospel. So every time you give to missions, you're giving to reaching people for Jesus. We can share our faith by inviting people to church. Invitation is the best way to get people to come. You say, Pastor, I don't believe any of that makes any difference. Who cares? <laughs> well, let me tell you a story about a little boy walking down the beach. And he's walking down the beach, the tide is going out, and there's hundreds upon hundreds of starfish on the beach. He's standing in the midst of them, and look, as far as the eye can see, there's starfish everywhere. They were brought in by the tide. The tides went out. The starfish are just littering the beach by the hundreds, by the thousands, by tens of thousands. And so the little boy, he picks up one of them, frisbees it back into the sea, walks a few more steps and grabs another one and throws it back into the sea. A man who is sitting in his chair watches the little boy, and he says, Son, what are you doing? And the little boy said, Mr. I'm throwing the starfish back into the water. The man said, son, don't you realize how futile your efforts are? 
There's, there's thousands upon thousands of starfish here. You're only on at the most going to be able to rescue maybe a hundred of them. What difference does it make? He said, Mister, it makes a difference to the hundred that I save. You see, when we share our faith, we might get turned down a lot. But it makes a difference to the ones who say yes. An eternal difference. And then as we close, Peter says one other thing. This is his last words to you and I before he's going to die for Jesus. His last words to those of his day who are reading this letter. He says, I want you to endure. I want you to persevere. I want you to keep looking for Jesus. I want you to keep living a holy life. I want you to keep sharing your faith. And then he says one more thing. He says, I want you to keep believing the Bible is the Word of God. Notice what he says in verse 16. I, middle of verse 16, he says, I know some things are hard to understand in the Bible, and all of us can say amen to that. But those that are untaught and unstable, these people twist to their own destruction the Word of God, the rest of the Scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know they're going to try to take you away from the Bible. Beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Peter closes out by giving another warning and an exhortation. He says false prophets and cultists and infidels and humanists they're going to come and they're going to try to discredit the Bible. They're going to call the Bible an ancient book for dinosaur people. They're going to say the Bible is a dated book. It only applies to hundreds of thousands of years ago. It has no pertinence in our society today. They're going to tell us the Bible's irrelevant, that it's filled with contradictions and mistakes and myths, that it's incomplete, it's insufficient. We need to add to it. We need to take away from it. We need to supplement it with our own stuff. We need to tell people that it's open to multiple meanings. That's what they do. Some of them are very subtle how they do it. Others are very overt. But if Satan can get us to doubt the Bible is the word of God, we're one step closer to destruction. Don't you fall for any nonsense about the Bible. Don't you fall for it. The Bible only has one author, and it's God himself, although he used different men to pin it. The Bible only has one problem, it's sin. The Bible only has one villain, it's Satan. The Bible only has one hero, his name is Jesus. The Bible only has one mission, Come to Jesus and get saved and then go out and tell others how to get saved. And the Bible only has one purpose, and that's to glorify God. The Bible is cohesive, it's comprehensive, it's truthful, it's eternal, it's soul-saving, it's life-changing. And may you and I never forget that. The B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me. I'll stand upon the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Believe the Bible.
because the day is coming when you are going to be challenged at every turn, including in churches, that the Bible cannot be used or it doesn't need to be used. You think it's just accidental that when you go to many churches, they'll talk about the Bible, but there's never a Bible. Why? Because they don't want to be offensive to people by pulling out the Word of God. Isn't that sad? Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. He's the living Word. May I add, if you're ashamed of the Bible, the Bible one day will shame you. So Peter says, endure. The Lord is coming again, endure. Our life is to be holy, endure. Our faith is to be shared, endure. The Bible is God's word, endure. Don't just start well, finish well. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed.